Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia, a very highly anticipated Rico Bronia. Rico Bronia, where we go down memory lane and we think about our favorite players and legends that we lost to free agency, to trades, to dumb management, to incompetent ownership. And it's interesting because I've read a lot of emails over this topic over the last couple of weeks, and it's fascinating to see the different impacts guys had on fans. You know, we're going to talk about some of the obvious ones throughout the podcast, the ones that are legendary legends that left the New York Mets, kind of talked about trades, but there are some that left an impact. So we'll get to all that real quick on the Met moves and I got to admit, because as we did so many podcasts previewing this offseason, I don't think we ever thought they would add a catcher. So when I saw that they signed Omar Narvaez, I was surprised. I was taken back a little bit. And the reaction I think most of us had was, what does this mean? What's the thinking here? You know, when you pay Omar Narvaez $8 million and then potentially $7 million, you're making an investment in him, which means he's going to play. You know, you didn't sign a guy to be your third-string catcher. You signed a guy, I think, to be their predominant catcher. Now, a couple things about Narvaez. Didn't have a great offensive year last year. Two years ago, he was awesome. Pete will tell you why I know that. Uh, He was on my fantasy team. He was my catcher the entire season. And now he had a really good year. Hits right-handers, left-handed bat, a little bit of pop. What we don't realize, unless we do research, is how good of a defensive catcher he is, especially when it comes to pitch framing, which – is all the rage these days, and I get why. You know, you could steal a couple of extra strikes. We shouldn't minimize that. That is a big deal. You know, until there's a computerized strike zone, which will happen eventually, having a catcher that's really good behind the plate at framing pitches is a big deal. You can mock it all you want. It matters. Jose Trevino did a great job of that with the Yankees last year. Tomas Nito, for the most part, did a great job of that with the Mets. And Narvaez has continued to grow as a pitch framer. So, You add another really good defensive catcher. I think it's obviously the end of uh, James McCann. I think we all know that. I'm not sure what that trade's going to look like. I'm not sure if he's going to be packaged with somebody else. I wouldn't expect a lot for James McCann, whether it's taking back another bad contract, whether it's eating most of his contract and taking back very little. McCann's not going to be on this roster. Uh, They're not going to carry three catchers and have it be Narvaez, McCann, and Nitto. Uh, The other thing about Narvaez at 30 years old, 31 years old, 
from Venezuela. Francisco Alvarez is from Venezuela. So maybe there's this teacher-pupil relationship that could be formed with a guy who's an elite pitch-framing catcher, a guy who's grown as a player over the seven years he's been in the major leagues. Uh, So that's another aspect of the Narvaez signing. I think he plays more so than Tomas Nito because he's a better hitter than Tomas Nito. And defensively, it feels like they're on the same plane. So it wouldn't stun me if Nito becomes expendable. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to get you much back anywhere. But I do think that Narvaez becomes more of a catcher, more of a predominant everyday catcher than Nito. The Alvarez impact, though, is I think what concerns a lot of us. There are two ways this can go. Number one, this could turn into kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the offseason, which is Alvarez is a part-time catcher and part-time designated hitter, which I had mentioned numerous times going in to this offseason, thinking it would mostly be with Nito and Alvarez, not exactly Narvaez. That still makes sense. You know, Narvaez plays basically half the games, faces right-handed pitching. Alvarez can DH potentially on those days. I know that may not fit as well because you have Daniel Vogelbach, but maybe Alvarez doesn't just play every single day. He plays two days a week at catcher, maybe three days a week at DH, and maybe there's a day or two where he's a bat off the bench, but a bat off the bench you could use. Because again, if you're carrying three catchers, and I mentioned this a lot late last year when there was a thought of bringing up Alvarez, and the Mets had the two terrible offensive catchers in Nitto and McCann, that you can use a big bat to pinch it for your catcher in the sixth or seventh inning, and you still want to have a backup. So you could have days where Narvaez starts, tough lefties in the game in the sixth inning, you go to Alvarez, and then you also have a third catcher like Nito who could come into the game later for defense. So that's one aspect, that maybe we just see the original plan occur where Alvarez is a part-time catcher, part-time DH. The other possibility, which I don't think is likely, is that Alvarez is just a DH. That doesn't make any sense. This kid's 20 years old. Uh, He has a chance to develop into a good defensive catcher at some point. Maybe not an elite defensive catcher, but at least an acceptable catcher. And he's a plus offensively. So it would make no sense to give up on a position or use that position very little and make him a full-time DH. The third option, which I'm scared of because it would piss me off, is that he starts the year in AAA. And I think that's a real possibility right now. They could go out and add an everyday DH or maybe kind of a right-handed platoon with Daniel Vogelbach that's better than Darren Ruff. And they could look at Francisco Alvarez, who only had the 12 major league at-bats last year, and say, well, he's only 21 years old. Let's see him develop a little bit more at AAA Syracuse. Because he didn't tear up AAA Syracuse. He got off to a slow start. He hit a little bit. You know, he ended up putting up decent numbers, but he wasn't dominating AAA. Uh, With that said, I'm not in favor of that. I think this kid is ready, and I think he's ready to learn. And what better way to learn how to be a major league catcher than getting to pitch to two of the great all-time pitchers of all time and get to sit next to a veteran catcher like Omar Narvaez and a guy like Tomas Nito. So I think those are the options. I don't know what the Mets are going to do. I'm just kind of laying out what could happen. What scares me, though, Hoff, is I think he's going to start the year at AAA, and that would be a massive disappointment. You know, not for nothing, that that would be the the worst scenario because I don't want him to be the everyday DH, but 
we went all season long saying how we needed him in the lineup just to see what he could do. So the fact that you break, push him down again is annoying. And what I understand about him too is he may be a slow starter. He was a slow starter in double A, but his numbers eventually picked up. He was a slow starter in triple A, but he figured it out. Like, just give him the at bats in the major leagues. Like, I'm someone who I'm okay with, you know, I, I do want someone to come in as a full time DH, but I do want Alvarez and, and Beatty to find a way to get 200 to 300 at bats at least a season. Yeah, I, I wonder if him starting at AAA would have more to do with him developing as a catcher more so than challenging him as a hitter. You know, I mentioned that he didn't tear up AAA, but that may not necessarily be the reason that he would start at AAA. Uh, but clearly, they just invested $8 million in another catcher. You know, I know Steve Cohen's spending money like it's going out of style, but still, you throw $8 million at a catcher, that guy's going to play. So I think he's going to play. I think he's going to catch most of the time. But you but you made a solid point, though. It's like, who better to learn from than Verlander and Scherzer? I mean, all you have to do is catch the freaking ball. We're not asking you to call a great game. They're going to call it for you. Just catch the ball. That's all you got to do. I understand. I think he's got to catch. I'm not telling you he's got to catch 120 games, but he's got to catch at the major league level. And if you want to start it off where maybe Narvaez catches – these pitchers and Alvarez catches these pitchers, maybe a guy that's easy to work with. You know, maybe you look at a guy like Jose Quintana and say, Hey, Jose Quintana, Francisco Alvarez, doesn't matter the opposing pitcher. You guys are going to work together. And it starts off that way. And then it slowly starts to evolve. I can understand Kodai Senga, maybe being a guy you don't want him to catch right out of the gate, maybe because of the language barrier, maybe because of the adjustment Senga has to make. Uh, but I want him to catch Like he's got to catch some at the major league level immediately because that's the only way you learn and that's the only way you develop and that it would be such a strength for this team to have a catcher who can hit like that. That would be huge. Well, two two things too. On top of that, the the at bats coming from a catcher position, we talked about the DH and the catching spot being lacking. You could easily fix the DH spot with the with the player. We said the one thing that I will say. If you want to carry three catchers the whole season or whatever, because you feel that Alvarez can start a game with these pitchers, because listen, the, the rotation, minus Senga being 30 years old, the rotation is an old rotation if you still have Carrasco around. Quintana, 34, 35, whatever it is. It's, it, Verlander, Scherzer. If you tell me, well, we're concerned with the bullpen, okay, fine, then get a, get a defensive sub. When, when the, the starting pitcher goes out, then Alvarez goes out. I can live with that too. I, I think that with the expanded rosters that we have, 26, you could carry three catchers, especially on a roster that features multiple guys who are very versatile. Uh, Jeff McNeil is very versatile. Luis Guillerme is very versatile. If I got my way and Brandon Drury is the right-handed bat they add, he's very versatile. So it allows you to, I think, carry a third catcher. So, We'll keep an eye on what the Mets decide to do. Uh, I would assume James McCann's going to be traded. I think Tomas Nito could be traded as well, but I think McCann's the priority because he really sucks <laughs> and he makes a lot of money. All right, let's go down memory lane with this. And there really is no criteria for great players or really good players. It comes down to this. We all have guys that we loved. Usually it's when we're kids and when they're gone, That's the moment where you realize baseball is a business. 
for a variety of reasons. So look, for me personally, I'm an adult. I'm a grown damn man. I know that baseball's a business. I understood the risks of Jacob DeGrom and Brandon Nimmo getting to free agency. And both those guys really qualify in a discussion like this because they were grown up as New York Mets. They became stars, especially in Jake's case, as New York Mets. But I also get that when you get to free agency, anything can happen. And I learned that at a very young age with many, many examples, some with my own team, some just throughout baseball, that when you get to free agency, it is a business. And if you don't make the highest bid, that guy is gone. So as a 39-year-old man, as disappointed as I was that Jacob deGrom left as a free agent, as mad as I may have been at the Met organization, it's very, very different than a lot of these examples we're going to go through. Because for a lot of people, that was your lesson into, holy crap, baseball is a ruthless business. Besides deGrom as an adult, you know, I never really developed favorite, favorite, favorite players. I had guys I really liked. Of course, I, I wore jerseys as a kid, but I never had a favorite, favorite, favorite player. Uh, if I had to pick one, it was probably Doc Gooden. And we'll start with him because when Doc left, you kind of knew it had to happen. Obviously, he had served a full suspension for the drug problems he was going with. And even though I was at 11 years old at the time, I understood what was happening. I understood that Doc had a major drug issue, and I had compassion for him. I mean, obviously, you you want him to get better. And I knew upon him getting to free agency, and I think it was even before he got to free agency, it was as he was serving the suspension in 1995 was the year he served the suspension. Because he actually started the year with the team in 94. I watched him. Tuffy Rhodes is hitting, you know, 50 home runs at Wrigley Field. I, my dad even told me, he's like, they will not bring him back. Like, he's gone. And I understood why. You know, I understood that the Mets had given him many, many chances. And as much as they wanted to be for him, be for him, or be uh, there for him, I guess is the proper wording of it, that it was just too late. But what killed me is when I started to hear the rumors about who was interested. And in my dad's credit, he told me right from the get-go, he said, he's going to the Yankees. And he's going to the Yankees because George Steinbrenner has an obsession with the 1986 Mets, which he was right about. I mean, look at Daryl Strawberry. He needed straw. He needed Doc. People forget this. You know who else he tried to add? Sid Fernandez. I think he was at Yankee spring training and just couldn't make the team. Never got there. But George was collecting 86 Mets. Now, I say this all these years later. I have great respect for what George Steinbrenner did. Because while he may have been collecting 86 Mets, I do think there was a part of him that was a really good guy that wanted to help Doc Gooden in a time of needing help. So I, I think as a kid, I, I didn't think that as much, probably because my dad was just telling me, George is a bastard. Look at this guy stealing 86 Mets. But I think looking back on it all these years later, I got it. And that was my first one. Because when Daryl Strawberry, and that's, of course, the other big one, left as a free agent. I remember him leaving, obviously. I remember the news that he was going to the LA Dodgers and saying, oh, this, this sucks. But I was really, really young. Like It was really before I started to watch, watch baseball. Remember, his last year with the Mets was 1990. I'm a seven-year-old. 
to put it in my own perspective, my kid right now is six. Like he understands what's going on, but not, I don't think fully. I, I always say the first year I really remember baseball was 1992. 1992, 1993 was like my real get into baseball. So Darrow leaving, I think is similar to what Jet, my oldest son's going to think about with DeGrom. He's heard about it. Dad told me about him leaving. I remember seeing him pitch a little bit, but 15 years from now, I don't think he would have like a deep recollection of what happened. But I heard about it and looking back on it all these years later about Darrow Strawberry, it comes back to the same problem. Frank Cashin was a douche. Frank Cashin could not wake up, could not wait to break up the 86 Mets. So I went back to look at the offers just to see, like, did they try to bring him back? He signs, and these these money figures are just going to make us laugh because they're so far off what happens today. Daryl Strawberry signed a five-year, $20 million contract, which at the time was the second biggest contract in all of baseball. During the regular season, the Mets had offered a three-year million contract. So less years, less money. And days earlier, they made an offer of four years and $15 million. So still coming up short, coming up a little bit short. Then I read this quote from Frank Frank Cashin after Dara left because they got outbid. Plus, Daryl's from LA. So you had to combine the fact that Dodgers were offering more money and the fact that he probably wanted to go home. Cashin says, I don't say that you can replace that kind of talent overnight, but I think we have enough resources to win without Daryl. And I think we have a chance to even be a better team and organization within a couple of years than if he was here with us. Frank, you buffoon. In 1990, the Mets won 91 games. They were at least competent. In the first year without Daryl Strawberry, when you brilliantly replaced him with Vince, I'm throwing firecrackers, Coleman, they went 77 and 84. The following year, they went 72 and 90. The year after that, the worst team money could buy, 59 and 103. There is a line of demarcation. I know that Gary Carter left a year earlier. Keith Hernandez left a year earlier. They were getting old. We'll get to a few others that, uh, Cashin couldn't wait to get rid of Mookie Wilson, Lenny died. But the line of demarcation when this franchise went down the tubes is when they made a decision to F with Daryl Strawberry. That's where it begins. Do you remember that, by the way, Hoffer? You because I, like I explained, I don't remember, remember it, but I remember of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, so I'm only a year older than you. But I'm still on that like cusp of I know how good Doc was. I know that he was going through issues, and same thing with Straw. And then it's just like poof out of nowhere, Strawberry's gone. And I'm like, I really didn't digest everything. Uh, but I'm on the same timeline because like there's some guys that I was like really liking, and they're they're not with the team anymore. I don't understand what this is. And now we start to suck too. We get to the point of, point of sucking where, like, the 90s were really where I was locked into the Mets, and that is a rough oh, strip. Yeah, that's a tough time to get into <laughs> baseball. We think that. <laughs> we think it's a tough time. <laughs> I have wondered because sometimes, and we've done this sometimes on the podcast, where there's this alternate history of, well, what if they kept him or what if they traded for this guy? 
I think forget about the baseball because the Mets were going down the tubes anyway. So even if they keep Daryl Strawberry, I don't think it changes the trajectory of the team, but does it mean they don't sign Bobby Benilla a few years later or Eddie Murray? Sure, maybe. But this team was obviously closing its championship window. I've asked Daryl about this because Joe and I back in the day had Strawberry on a lot. And it's the question of if you don't go home, do you maybe not run into the same personal issues that you ran into? And Daryl has said, maybe he doesn't, that sometimes going home is the worst thing that could happen. And it obviously turned out to be a bad decision. Forget the baseball stuff. I'm not talking about that. Just falling in to the old habits and being around guys who really aren't looking at your best interests at heart. And it can turn into a bad situation, which it obviously did on a personal level for Daryl Strawberry. But to his credit, he's turned his life around. He's a great dude. And so it's something he can look back on as a lesson, even though it was a very, very hard lesson. But that was a big one, losing Daryl Strawberry, because it was the sign of the era turning. Now, the most prominent one, and I got a handful of emails about it. One guy even just wrote the date. He didn't have to tell me what he was referring to. And that, of course, is the old trade deadline of June 15th. And he was referring not to the Mets trading Dave Kingman in 1977, but the Mets trading Tom Seaver. It did happen on the same day, by the way. What is so fascinating about the Seaver thing is how this would have played out in the era of WFAN, in the era of Rico Bronia podcast, in the era of Twitter. Because basically what happened, was Tom Seaver, this is the way I know the story, okay? So for any of our older listeners, you may correct me on certain things. This is what I know. Tom Seaver wanted a new contract, okay? These are the days before you just simply get to free agency and get the most money. Free agency was in its infant infant stage. Infancy, I think is the word. So he wanted a new contract. And M. Donald Grant, who ran the team back then, was a former stockbroker and a real prick. And you don't have to cut that out. Like, keep it. I want that to be known. M. Donald Grant was a prick. And if there's a family member of M. Donald Grant that wants to email me or bitch at me, I'll just say this. Just bring it. Okay? Just bring it. I- I'd love to hear it. Um, and M. Donald Grant lowballed him. And then the other thing M. Donald Grant did, because I saw an interview of him after they traded Tom Seaver, he was, I mean, beyond the prick. Because he said about Seaver, I didn't want to trade Tom Seaver. You know, I didn't want to trade him. He demanded a trade, and we'll get to that. And I'm his father. Like, he's like, I'm a father figure to him. And he turned his back on all of us. Like, really put all the blame on Tom Seaver. So a couple of things that also happened is there was a reporter at the time named George Young. And George Young started to go after Tom Seaver, started to really rip him in the newspapers. And the thing that set Tom off, where he did ask for a trade, that is true. You know, I don't think we report it that way all these years later. It's the Mets traded Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver was fed up at one point. A's getting low ball by M. Donald Graham. And then B, George Young continues to go after him and then mentions his wife, Nancy, and starts to spread a rumor that she's jealous of Nolan Ryan's wife. Problems. At that point, Seaver's done. He thinks M. Donald Grant and George Young are working in unison. So I guess if we're using an example of today, I like Mike Vaccaro, so I'll use him as an example. Uh, Jeff Wilpon goes to Mike Vaccaro and says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to destroy, just destroy 
Zach Wheeler. Just kill him. He's a douche. Start bringing up his family. Go after everybody. Therefore, Zach will hate us so much. It'll be his fault that he left and not ours. And that's the game that M. Donald Grant and George Young pulled. So yeah, Tom Seaver demanded a trade, but they alienated the crap out of him. And so Seaver gets traded to Cincinnati. The Mets are already kind of in their era of being bad, but that puts it over the top. And it leads to something that, it's an interesting question. If you know you're going to be bad, and the Mets kind of knew in the late 70s things were going bad, do you say, hey, let me trade my great player, get young pieces to hope I rebuild, or do I say, you know what, I'm going to suck, and I want to at least ride it out with a legend. So every five days, you can come to the ballpark, and you could see the guy that helped us win the 1969 World Series. You could see the guy that helped us win the pennant in 1973. Now, that wasn't M. Donald Grant's thinking at the time, because Seaver was not even close to past his prime. He was in his early 30s, but was still pitching at a high level. But if you know you're bad, do you just say, screw it, who cares? I've actually thought about that in relation to a guy like Kevin Durant, except it's different because I don't have an emotional attachment to Durant that I would have with a guy who helped me win a championship, to a guy who has been on my team since he was a kid. But I guess it's the trade-off of riding out and watching a legend, even though my team sucks, as opposed to trading that legend to try to get young pieces to begin the turnaround. I mean, the one thing I have to say about that is because it's weird. I, we've, we have seen it in New York, a few different places, like for most recently with the Rangers. Lundquist stuck around for a very long time and I eventually went to Washington. They let him walk away. He didn't play due to heart conditioning, but it was like it was difficult to be like, he's going to play for another team. Right. If you think, though, like as a fan, and I feel like an owner should think this way too, if you have that attachment to a player where it's like, I this guy was amazing for us, we're terrible, can we get him on a team that's going to potentially win something? I could see that. But on the other hand, I could also see the, we need to try to fill the seats as much as possible, and this guy's still a name, keep him around. Yeah. Not the, I'm seduced and let's get rid of right. the guy and let's get him out of town. If I was around in 1977, I have a 32-year-old Tom Seaver who's still pitching at a very high level. My team's done, though. I know I'm going into a full rebuild mode. I want Tom Seaver around. I just do. I want him to be a part of the rebuild. And if I can come out of the rebuild with a resurgence, I want him there. Now, this Seaver thing gets even worse because this <laughs> is so screwed up. The Mets finally right the wrong and bring him back for the 1983 season. I think we've all seen the clip of Tom Seaver dramatically walking out of the Met bullpen to pitch opening day against the Philadelphia Phillies. It was great. No, it was just fantastic. Offseason of 82 and 83, they right the wrong. They bring back a veteran Tom Seaver, and he pitches on this young, rebuilding Met team, a Met team that you know was one year away from really turning the whole thing around. And he's good. Like, he's still a capable major league pitcher. And Met fans are very, very happy. And he makes 34 starts. He throws a ton of innings, has a three and a half VRA. He's 38 years old. But now Tom Seaver's not only going to get to finish his career as a Met, but he's going to get to do it with this resurgent team because you knew about all the prospects coming up. So, in a lot of ways, this is worse. What I'm about to tell you, if you, don't, if you 
for those Med fans who are young and don't know this story, because you've probably heard about trading Tom, Tom Seaver. But do you know about this one? Because I think this one may be worse. The way free agency used to work back in the day is there would be a free agent pool. So every team would have to protect a certain amount of guys on their roster. And then if a team lost a free agent, they would be able to pick someone from that pool. Think of it as an expansion draft. You know how in an expansion draft, you protect a certain amount of guys and the expansion team gets to pick uh, guys to fill out a roster. So on a much smaller scale, it was the same. Each team had to protect, I forget the exact number, let's say 20 guys. You know, 20 of the 24-man rosters back then, you have to protect. You leave four out. And it's like a, it's a, you're not really getting much back. You just lost a key free agent. You get somebody off someone's roster. So Frank Cashin, we talked about him earlier. He's a douche too. A lot of douches in the history of the New York man. There's a lot of them. Frank Cashin decides, I'm not going to protect Tom Seaver because nobody's going to take him. Nobody's going to take him. He's making some money. He's 39 years old. I got no worry. I'll sneak through it. I'll be able to protect someone else, and that'll be it. And guess what happens? The Chicago White Sox pick him up. In January of 1984, they lose Tom Seaver again one year after they traded for him to have him end his career with the Mets. And it was fine. He pitched well. He made every start. He's getting a freaking standing ovation as he's coming to the mound at Shea Stadium on opening day. And they lose him for nothing. The only thing I'll give Cash and credit for is he wrote a handwritten letter to my dad apologizing and admitting he screwed up. And I found this quote from Frank Cashin. So I do admire people that could admit they're wrong. His quote, Mia culpa, Mia culpa, Mia maxima culpa. I had the final decision. I made a mistake. We made a calculated and regrettable gamble. So he admitted the mistake of it, but think about what this turns into. Tom Seaver plays for three more years, and the Mets are good. 84, they're in a race. 85, they're in a race. We all know about 86. He should have been on the 86 Mets. He was actually on the Red Sox in 86, but wasn't on the World Series roster. And and I've asked people about this. Was he announced on the field before game one of the World Series? And he was and got a standing ovation as a Red Sox in the 86 World Series. Uh, Before our time, Hoff, don't you think the second one in a lot of ways is worse than just trading him to begin with? What I I do want to know is who was the decision? Like, was it between Tom Seaver and who? <laughs> and they, they decided to go. Because if that guy wasn't on the team and for much longer, then I'm like, oh, this is even worse. Yeah, no, I. if your whole mindset is we're bringing it back, he's going to retire. And the guy won 300 games, right? Yeah. He did it with the White Sox. Like, that's the things that should have been Mets history never happened. And, and, and it sucks, dude. That, that, that's a guy. That's why it hurts so much about the whole Tom Seaver not being a Met for, for life. Yeah. I, the way I would relate it is if the Mets four years from now, bring back Jacob DeGrom, they trade for him at the end of the Texas contract. He's still good. He's the final piece of a puzzle. And DeGrom comes back and loves it and says, ah, this would be great. I'm going to get to finish my career as a Met. I have a chance to be on a championship team. And then the following year, the Mets let him go again. <laughs> That's, I guess, what it would be like. Where they just 
they just let him go. He's got he's got a club option. They're like, you know what? This is just we'll, we'll, we're not going to pick it up. We'll buy you. I, I do admire that Cashin admitted he screwed up. At least they did admit. Like, yeah, all right. By the way, the whole Seaver thing is he gets his three hundredth win as a Chicago White Sox and does it at Yankee Stadium, which was kind of cool because I know that that place was packed with Met fans. It was a weird Met fan showing up at Yankee Stadium 